Hello and thank you for tuning in to the Dairy Dialogue podcast this week with four interviews. Do you tune in anymore in the digital age? Probably not, at least not for podcasts. Anyway, this is number 105 and I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter. You do still tune in on the radio, so I'm not feeling like too much of a dinosaur. At least I didn't say available now on 8-track. It's been a wet week here at Dairy Reporter HQ, which is typical because there's been no school until today. Although, with ever-changing regulations, who knows whether that's a temporary thing or not. Still plenty of chaos here, with some places in lockdown, others not, and even the kind of lockdown varies depending on where you are. And I think that's a pattern being played out in many other places. Plans still well underway for the upcoming webinar. Hopefully you've already registered for that. It comes up on November the 5th, so just a couple of weeks now. I won't go into huge detail because I did that last week and the week before. So you can learn more on the main page of dairyreporter.com and register. It's free, and even if you're not sure you can make it on the day, you can register and listen later, kind of like this podcast. We'll have the news for you in just a moment, but before that, a quick run-through of this week's guests. This week on the Dairy Dialogue podcast, we have, as I mentioned, four interviews with Orla Matthews, Carberry Marketing Manager, Falk Paulson, Sales and Business Development Director, Extrusions Solutions at Mondi, Matthew Hall, owner at Bottler's Farmhouse Cheeses, and Scott Pettit, Head of Corporate Affairs at Danone Oceania. And, of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. So let's take a quick look at the news from the past seven days that you may have missed. We had an interesting article on ABB about digitalizing dairy processing. Demand from China has boosted Fonterra's milk price. Polish dairy company OSM Pietnica is expanding its cogeneration system. Friso is the first brand in Singapore to enable formula milk tracking. Group Bell in France is embracing plant-based as part of its transformation strategy. And a study from Tufts University in Massachusetts in the US says that cheese odor is just bacteria and fungi communicating. COVID and Q3 financial results have led the known to announce a reshaping of its organization. We had a story on the upcoming Virtual Pack Expo, which you can attend wherever you are in the world. I guess as long as you have internet access, kind of hard to go online without that. We also had an article on Metla Toledo on dynamic check weighing in washdown environments. In Norway, Tinna is part of a 17-member group that launched an agricultural climate calculator. Dairy Works Limited, which is a part of Sinlay, has sold Deep South ice cream, and Tim's Dairy in the UK has introduced Greek-style kefir. You can read all of these and more, and register for the upcoming free webinar at dairyreporter.com. I know when I first started here at Dairy Reporter, I'd maybe get one plant-based press release every month, and that's now at least one or two a day. And the same can probably be said of packaging stories. Consumers are definitely looking for many things in their products these days. Great taste, obviously, short ingredient lists, health benefits if possible, and in the past little while, packaging has become really important. Is it excessive? Is it recyclable? Is it compostable? Can it be replaced? 
Retailers are starting to take note, governments are too, and food manufacturers are also doing their part. So we have a couple of different interviews on packaging this week, and here is the first of them. Austrian headquartered packaging and paper manufacturer Mondi Functional Paper and Films is launching a fully recyclable 80% paper-based packaging solution for products, including cheese. The new package, which is called Performing, will reduce plastic usage for Austrian dairy producer Salzburgmilch by approximately 40 tonnes per year. To tell us more about the product and the partnership with Salzburgmilch is Falk Paulsen, Sales and Business Development Director, Extrusion Solutions at Mondi. So could you first tell me a little bit about Mondi? Yes, sure. Mondi is a global leader in packaging and uh, paper, and uh, we would like to contribute to a better world by making innovative packaging and uh, paper solutions. And uh, our pledge or say is that we are sustainable by design. And uh, since we are working a lot now on sustainability, we have to say now paper where possible, plastic when uh, useful. And with this idea, we are working on the different challenges we have these days within packaging. Why was the performing removable developed and what is it made from? If you can give me some details about that product, that would be great. Performing was developed, already introduced also in 2019, uh, when there was a question, what can we do to reduce plastic in the packaging, but anyhow to keep food fresh and avoid waste. We started to look for uh, solutions and we have then developed uh, a formable paper and this we combined with a barrier film and the product has at the end 80% of paper and 20% of barrier material. We continue to develop it and um, made it at the end removable. So it means that you can take off the film from the paper and this allows you to put the paper tray into the recycling or in the paper recycling stream in Europe. And if you remove the, the plastic from the paper, it is 100% recyclable across Europe. And this is a big step forward. What are the advantages of the product other than its recyclability? I mean, the advantages, our customer Salzburg Milch, they told us uh, they are saving over 40 tons of plastic each year now. And the good thing is that you can run the material on the existing uh, lines, so you don't have to buy new equipment. And it's very important because all producers, they have their production lines and uh, they're looking for material that they can directly use on their lines. And also, what is a big advantage is that you're saving CO2 on your CO2 footprint. We have made a life cycle analysis that also there we are sure that we have a much more sustainable products in the market. But for sure, the most important thing is you don't want to go back in shelf life or in food waste. So this was important for everybody implied in this product that we have got the same level and they made these uh, shelf life tests and uh, we have got exactly the same that we have with the packaging before. So you don't have to make a compromise or a step back when it comes to food waste. And how did you end up partnering with Salzburg Milch in SPAR? We've got a program with the Mondi, it's called EcoSolutions. And with EcoSolutions, we are looking in each country on one side, what are the recycling requests? Because at the moment, Europe, each country is different. Yeah, the laws are different and how the recycling systems are working is different. But on the other side, we have got the retailers who started to also have a big demand, especially for themselves, to say, 
we would like to save X percent of, of plastics, or we would like to have X percent of recyclable products. And we try to bring this together. So we are analyzing what does each retailer want, what is needed in the country, and then we see them and propose what we can offer to help them to reach their sustainability goals. And within this way, the three partners came together. So on one side, the retailer, but also the cheese producer Salzburg Milch and ourselves, so that we have got common development and bring it to the market, because it can be a long way from developing an innovative product to the market. But in this setup, together with the retailers, it's a very efficient way. And what kind of products, obviously we were a dairy publication, but what kind of products is the performing packaging suitable for? We are facing on sliced cheese, but you also could think about that you go in for sliced ham or sliced sausages. Uh, for example, in France, we are already in the market uh, also with sliced ham. There, for example, the producer was made a pledge that he said, look, to their end customers, we are changing to a much more sustainable packaging, but the price of the product will remain the same. Because, yes, this is always a thing to mention, very sustainable products have got a different price setting than uh, the products that before. But we see that there's an advantage for the producer because they give an advantage to the end customer. He can really act much more sustainable than before. And how does it help your customers with their own food waste and sustainability goals? It's a big step forward. As I mentioned, uh, Salzburg Milch will save 40 tons of plastic each year now with introducing performing removal. And this is where a lot of companies, producers, but also retailers are going because they made these big targets for the coming years that they want to save massively the plastic waste. And this is one important step forward that it's possible now. So uh, you can do it. Yeah. So we have the solutions that you can really save plastic, but you don't increase the food waste. And I think this combination is very important that one goal is not working against the other goal. So we can really keep the level of food waste, but also save plastic at the same time. Performing isn't the only product that you have. What other products do you have in the range? And I assume that you're also working on sustainability with your other products as well. Yes. Our goal is to combine and uh, to use our advantage of our company. As I said, we have got a huge range of products available and paper where possible, plastic when useful. So we try to combine the best out of both worlds yeah? because paper is a natural product. It's a regrowing material, a regrowing resource, but you need barriers to protect your food, yeah? And we try to bring this together and to find the best solutions for the environment for sustainability. Paper is a great product, but for example, when we look at cheese, you cannot just wrap cheese into a piece of paper. You have to use it in two days, yeah? And therefore, we always, for the moment, we need a certain amount of plastic to give the barrier properties for the product to have the shelf life of, for example, for this cheese, it's, it's three months. Because we live in a modern society, you go to the shop, you buy your food, you put it in your refrigerator, but you're not sure, do I really consume it in the next two days? No, you want to have something in, in, in your fridge and maybe consume it in two weeks when you're looking forward for some cheese. We try to offer the best sustainable way to save plastic on one side, but also to have the shelf life. And I assume you must have a research capacity at the company. Are you constantly working on new and better products? 
Yes, definitely. We constantly working to find new solutions, better solutions. But very important is to work together with, as I said, with the retailers, but also with the producers, because we have to understand their needs. Yeah, what are they targeting for? And also, we have to look at each market. Yeah, and this is a challenge for us, but for all packaging suppliers, we have to take care what is relevant for which country. For example, in Austria, we have got the rule 80-20, 80% paper, 20% plastic. It is seen as a paper product. In Germany, we have 95-5, so only 5% of plastic are allowed. And that was a trigger to develop uh, performing removable because when the end customer can remove both materials, then also we have a solution for the German market that part of performing can go onto the paper recycling stream and is recycled. And so this is the challenge we are in. On one side, the demand of the producer, of the retailer, but then also the national legislations. And there we are working to find for each market the best solution. So I guess you also have to be aware of the different regulations in different countries as well to keep up with the regulations so that you can meet your customers' needs. Definitely. And this was one of the biggest challenges at the beginning when we started two years to look closer in each market. And surprisingly for us, it was not possible to get one booklet where all regulations of Europe are in. It was for us really a, a lot of work to pull all these informations together recycling legislation from each country and it was for us a lot of manual work. Now, since time is moving on, we find more and more partners, but at the beginning, our team was calling in each country the respective recycling companies, the, the people who make the legislation to find out what is needed and wanted in each market. That's right, because it's not just a case of um, what the regulations are, because in different countries, the recycling capacities are different as well. I know here in the UK, there are things that aren't recycled here that are recycled in Sweden. So there's also the practical side of things as well. Exactly. So each country is different, but also time is not standing still. So especially when you look at UK, also there we have got now the change in, in paper recycling uh, that we remove from 80-20 to now 85-15%. And so also this we have to include in our uh, the development that we don't only have a solution for today, but also that we have a solution in, in one year and two years, yeah? that we keep on track with the changes in the market. And this is not only happening in the UK, in all countries, there are different discussions about the change of regulation. Then Europe is also giving uh, their opinion. So it, it's quite a challenge, but it's also very exciting because there's a, a lot of moving on. So the market is, is moving very quick at the moment. We work very close with the regulation of the country, and therefore we want to, or we, we, we try to also get certificates for each market. So for example, we have in France, we have a recycling certificate. We have one in Italy, we have one for Austria. We have from paper institutes in Germany, we have uh, certificates. So also this is very important that you also give the proof from external partners that what our product can do. So it's also not enough from just to tell, uh, yes, we have a great product. Now you also have to give the proof from external partners, institutes to show to the customers, yes, not only we say it, we have the proof from an institute. We're sticking with cheese for our next guest from Carberry, which is a global company headquartered in Ireland. The company's launching Carberry Dairy, a new cheese brand, specifically for the ingredients and food service markets in Europe and Asia. And to tell us all about it is Orla Matthews, Carberry's marketing manager. 
So I guess we'll start with, could you tell me what Carberry Dairy is and why the company decided to launch it? Yeah, Carberry as a group is, you know, a farmer owned cooperative and we're, we're based in, in West Cork in the south of Ireland. And we've spent over 50 years producing natural cheese products and are one of Ireland's largest cheese producers. So we've a strong experience and knowledge across the spectrum of dairy production, all the way from, you know, the farm to fork. So as part of our growth strategy, Carberry has always had a reputation for diversification and it's always been a core part of our business model as well. So in 2018, we announced plans to diversify our cheese product range and move into pasta filata, so mozzarella production, and target new markets and new products and applications. And the reason for this was really around, you know, we looked at global food consumption trends in dairy and cheese like mozzarella provides us with a more diversified product range outside of just cheddar capabilities and an opportunity to build in in new markets such as Asia. So really the Carberry Dairy brand was developed as part of this plan and we wanted to create a brand identity and drive awareness of our cheese offering for ingredients and food service markets, particularly in Europe and Asia. So Carberry Dairy I guess the reasoning behind that was to really strongly convey our key competency in dairy, but also keeping and building on that reputation of the Carberry brand and the heritage and expertise associated with it. And currently we're running our launch campaign, which is Carberry Dairy All for Cheese. And really that's telling the story of how everything we do all the way from the grass and the cows and the milk to the applications that we create. So from farm to fork is all about creating that great tasting, high quality cheese for various markets and for the end consumer. What does the range consist of? So the range includes four key product groups. So we have natural cheddar and we have a variety of different natural cheddars with various flavor profiles. So from mild to mature and various functionalities, certain cheddar types will work differently in different applications. We also have what we're calling our cheese extra range, which is a range of functional reduced fat cheeses, speciality cheeses. So that's cheese such as Italian style cheese and inclusion cheese. And then obviously the newest addition to the range is our pasta filata range, which would include mozzarella and also grilling cheese. You know, we do have quite a wide range within the brand and they're designed for a variety of different applications. So whether it's pizza or baking or ready meals, sauces um, or snacks as well. And like I mentioned, you know, the cheddar products across the range, we would offer various flavor profiles. And we'd also focus very heavily on different functionality characteristics. So say, for example, like an excellent stretch or the sliceability of the cheese, good melting or low browning characteristics. So we would be able to meet a range of different functionality requirements of our customers. And then also within the Carberry Dairy brand, we've developed the professional range. This range is specifically to meet the needs of chefs in the food service sector. And all of these cheeses would have been tested in in real life food settings, food service settings. And the idea behind that is really to ensure that they perform well under different cooking and baking conditions. And are there different formats, like different sizes for food service? Yeah, we'd have, you know, a variety of different formats, obviously, depending on the market and the geography. So we would obviously offer bulk format. 
And then for the food service market, we would offer formatted products. So whether that's smaller blocks or sliced and shredded. And then our new mozzarella products are in a 10 kg block format, but that 10 kg block is made up of four by 2.5 kg blocks. So you're you know, offering that kind of smaller format, which will obviously be important for food service settings as well. And you mentioned the different geographies for this do you have to tailor your products to different markets and are they sort of different products that you need in different markets yeah so it it is really interesting you know there are quite a diverse range of needs across different markets so obviously you know we would look um, at the markets and research the trends and the consumer insights in each of the markets to ensure that you know we're developing products that are relevant to that market and then we you know we would work very closely with our customers and our model is all about partnering with our customers but the different requirements vary so they could be say from a compositional perspective so in some markets say they will want a lower salt level even from a storage perspective some markets are looking for say frozen mozzarella whereas other ones are looking for maybe super chilled or then there would even be requirements in terms of how the cheese is made and the different starter cultures that are used as well other areas that would differ hugely would be taste requirements so obviously there's different taste profiles that work better in different markets so some markets particularly in Asia might prefer say a milder or a sweeter cheddar for example whereas others will prefer like a stronger more mature flavor And then particularly in some of our Asian markets, you know, one of the key requirements for mozzarella would be actually the stretch. So making sure that it's getting at least 50 centimetres of stretch. Each market is different and they do have different requirements across kind of a spectrum. So that's something that we would work very closely with our customers and, and also do quite a bit of research around. And then obviously our research and development teams, our cheese makers and our cheese graders will be very aware of that and we'll all work very closely together. So we actually have in-house technology and experience in the cheese culture, so in the starter culture technology. And that gives us more flexibility, you know, to tailor the cheese and to tailor the recipe to meet the different taste or functionality requirements. I was just going to say, you obviously have good um, in-house research if you're able to tailor all of these to so many different markets. Yeah, exactly. And as well as that, I guess, having that in-house expertise on the research and development side and, you know, the ability to develop the bespoke recipes, that's important. But then also ensuring that that transfers to a production scale as well. So like our facility would be bespoke. So we can ensure that we um, bespoke to us and we can ensure that these recipes then transfer effectively to a, you know, a production scale, which is which is almost just as important. And then obviously the the next step then is around the maturation and the storage conditions during maturation. And also then we have our own cheese graders that will monitor how the cheese is maturing and developing over time. And they will actually select the right cheese for each of the different markets or each of the different um, customers as well. And of course, we mentioned food service, and that's something that's been particularly badly hit. Have you started to see any recovery in that? 
obviously it's been one of the areas that has been hugely hit by the pandemic for sure. We are still seeing opportunities and we're certainly seeing opportunities in the Asian market as well. And I think a huge part of that is the increase in demand for home delivery services. So I saw a stat there that 89% of global consumers have purchased from home delivery um, in the last six months. You know, people don't see that as a treat anymore. It's part of an everyday life, I think. And I think that's particularly so in Asia. So while, of course, there has been an impact on that, we are seeing other areas to kind of offset it and other areas to focus on. And I don't think, you know, that home delivery service piece is going anywhere anytime soon. So I think that is something that we and the food industry in general are going to have to continue to look at and develop applications and We'll have to continue to respond to that growth in that particular area of the market. Is is this new range something that will be available directly to consumers in supermarkets? The Carberry Dairy brand won't be available on retail shelves. It's primarily focused on the ingredients and food service market. So that's really where we're focusing for this particular brand. And obviously, there are different requirements for different types of cheese, depending on the final application. But we will really be focusing on the food service and ingredient market for Carberry Dairy. Again, some of these markets are relatively new in terms of the uses of some of these cheeses. Are you able to help chefs and other food service outlets with ways to use these products? Yeah, absolutely. So like I mentioned before, you know, we really want to focus on how we work with our customers and work directly with our customers. And particularly, like you said, to help kind of guide and direct how these cheeses can be used. Our applications and culinary team would work directly with customers but as well as that we would proactively look at different ways of using cheeses taking different global trends into account and would develop applications proactively and then use these to kind of communicate with our customers as well so we very much want to you know help guide them how to use the cheese but then also take guidance from them in terms of where they're targeting and who their core consumer is but yes absolutely we'd work with them we'd provide guidance and then we'd also work with them as they're developing new applications as well to make sure that our cheese works in those particular applications and can kind of help guide how best to use the cheese and how to achieve, you know, the desired flavor or or functionality that they're looking for. And I suppose in some ways it's kind of exciting when it does enter a new market because there's the potential for them to think outside the box and use them in a way that maybe we wouldn't have thought of. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, one of the key areas that we've seen interest in is our cheese extra range. So that's a range of reduced fat cheeses. We might think that that would be just to offer lower fat levels or lower calories. But actually, that range works really well in applications such as ready meals or bakery. It offers added functionality. And that has got to do with how the cheese is actually made, the reduced fat levels and the protein content as well. So you actually get a stronger umami profile in bakery or ready meals. It also melts quite well. And you don't get, say, with a full fat cheddar cheese, you might get some oil out and the cheese may not hold its shape as well whereas the cheese extra range actually holds its shape and baking a little bit more and you don't get that reduced oil out but still get that really nice umami profile as well so that's a key example of a new use or a new application for cheese that maybe you know you wouldn't have thought of if you weren't going 
into these new markets and new areas of focus. And it seems like a bit of a strange question because this is a relatively new product, but is this something that you envisage expanding the range in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, you know, we've been producing cheese for over 50 years, but innovation has always been our focus and we're always looking at ways that we can expand the range and add new products to the range. So again, another example would be the inclusion cheese. So that's a range of cheeses with herbs and spices included, and it's actually added in line. So it's added as the cheese is being made. So we would have a fajita spice product, a black pepper product, a chili product, for example. So that's an example of innovation, you know, developing new flavor profiles to meet consumer demands. So we're always looking at how we can expand that. Obviously, like you said, the newest addition is the pasta filata, which is mainly mozzarella. But we're also looking at grilling cheese. It's looking to mimic the characteristics of halloumi cheese, which we're seeing huge growth in at the moment. And that's mainly been driven by the growing flexitarian diets as well. And it's used in a number of different food service settings, whether it's burgers, for example, it's a good alternative for that. So we're constantly looking to see what we can add to the pipeline and constantly looking how we can, you know, maybe tailor our current products to maybe meet a slightly different consumer need. Next, it's off to the other side of the world and the other hemisphere to chat with Scott Pettit, Head of Corporate Affairs at Danone Oceania, about sustainability. This week we had an article about Danone announcing its New Zealand milk formula brand, Carry Care, which will achieve carbon neutrality at each stage of the product lifestyle by 2030. And Scott can tell us about this and other measures Danone is taking with respect to sustainability in New Zealand and beyond. So could you first give us a little background information on the Carry Care brand? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, so our Carry Care brand um, is a homegrown New Zealand brand, Jim, which you may be aware of. And it's been around for about 100 years. So it's a very long history and it's held in extremely high regard, as you might expect, by Kiwi parents and also parents in Australia and increasingly throughout the region. And so we made a decision to transition the Carry Care brand in its entirety to carbon neutrality. And this is a measure that's not uncommon uh, within Danone. We have other brands in our portfolio that are either today carbon neutral or have made the commitment to, to transition as we have now with CariCare. And our commitment to carbon neutrality is across what we call the full scope. And so that incorporates in the first instance our sourcing and the agricultural piece. So you know, we're committed to work very closely with our farming partners uh, and with the companies who we source ingredients from to pursue initiatives like uh, regenerative agriculture, for example. Thankfully, New Zealand is, as you may know, Jim, well known globally for its dairy industry being one of the leaders when it comes to low carbon. Um, and this is something that's going to help us, I think, significantly on this journey with Carry Care transitioning it to, to carbon neutrality. Uh, secondly, we look at the manufacturing piece, we look at our operations. So once we source the ingredients, we then transport them to our factories and we dry the milk into a powder, we blend it with other ingredients, we package it up into a finished product. And of course, there's a carbon emissions that's related to that operational element. And there are a number of things that we're pursuing on that front, uh, Jim, one of which is the installation of a biomass 
boiler uh, in our Valclutha spray drying facility, which will in itself eliminate about 20,000 tonnes of CO2 emissions a year. And then we're also uh, transitioning to 100% green energy across all of our facilities in New Zealand, and, and we anticipate to, to have that fully in place next year in 2021. And interestingly, not unlike the agricultural piece, we're also benefited significantly by the fact that we're manufacturing in New Zealand because New Zealand has an abundance of availability of green energy, one of the highest in the world, I understand. So around about, it's a little bit over 80%, in fact, of the energy, total energy produced in New Zealand is from sustainable sources, so predominantly hydro and wind. So this means that we can source green energy to run our facilities with relative ease. Uh, and the third piece uh, across the full scope is packaging. So, of course, the kind of packaging that we, uh, the formats and the materials and so forth that we use with our product has a pretty significant impact on the carbon footprint. So, you know, we're constantly looking at ways that we can improve and, and that might be to use fewer materials in our packaging or to look at the proportion of recycled content that we're using in our packaging, making sure that as much of our packaging as possible is recyclable. So really across those three pillars, the sourcing, the operations, and the packaging, those are the three main components that we're looking at as we take the CarryCare brand on this carbon neutral journey over the next 10 years, really up until 2030. When it comes to planning to do something like this, is there a step-by-step process that you have to follow in order to meet that goal? Yeah, perhaps unsurprisingly there is. Jim, as you might appreciate, the process is is extremely complex. There are a lot of moving parts. I mean, even, even just getting to the point where we can announce this kind of commitment uh, for CarriCare has taken us many, many months. But thankfully, across the Danone company, we have some pretty good blueprints to work off. So I think, as I mentioned, we already have a few brands in our portfolio that have already completed this journey. So in our waters division, both our Evian and Volvic brands are today carbon neutral. And then in our dairy business uh, in North America, we have a brand called Horizon Organic that has similarly already made a commitment to carbon neutrality. And then, of course, earlier this year, we had our Wexford uh, plant in Ireland, uh, which announced that it is today fully carbon neutral. So there's a lot of uh, knowledge and expertise, a lot of IP within the company about how to do this and the kind of steps and measures that are involved in taking a brand like CarryCare towards carbon neutrality. And again, a lot of it's to do with the three pillars that I touched on a moment ago. So it's the sourcing and agriculture, it's the operations and the packaging piece. Are you taking any other measures beyond simply becoming carbon neutral? What, what else is the company doing on the environmental front? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a fine question, Jim. And, and I, I, I ponder how much time we have to, <laughs> to discuss <laughs> because our, our roadmap on sustainability is, is expansive to say the least. You know, Danone's overarching vision as a company, is what we call uh, One Planet, One Health. So this is the belief that the health of people, which is really our core business, being in health, food, and and drink categories, the health of people and the health of the planet are interconnected. And you can't have one without without the other. And so this is why, as Danone, we have a huge commitment to our sustainability ambitions, our sustainability goals, because the requirement, of course, in the next 
20, 30, 40, 50 years is that the planet needs to be able to sustainably support healthy food production for a population that will be approaching 10 billion people. And our belief is that that is possible. But again, it requires action to be taken today, action across a whole range of different areas. So the areas that we focus on as a company are really four key pillars. So we look at our carbon emissions reductions, which we've been talking about. We also look at uh, water stewardship. So the water that we use in our factories, how we treat the water, how we reuse water, the quality of our of our water emissions, so on and so forth. Uh, we also look at um, regenerative agricultural practices, and in particular, the health of our soils, which is degrading at a somewhat alarming rate. So there's a real need to focus on how do we work with our farming communities to foster those regenerative agricultural practices. And this is something that, again, to its credit, New Zealand is taking a leading role on. And, and uh, the New Zealand government is very focused on supporting its dairy industry and its farmers to explore more effective ways to farm, ways that are more sustainable, and, and ways that contribute to regenerating the land rather than degrading it. And the last area, the fourth area that we focus on mainly is packaging, trying to ensure that as much as possible we're fostering what we call a circular economy of packaging. So making sure that the packaging that we produce stays in use as much as possible and stays out of nature. So it stays out of our waterways, it stays out, out of our oceans. And we do that by ensuring that as much of our packaging as possible is recyclable or reusable or compostable. And our goal as a company is to ensure that 100% of our packaging across all of our categories is either recyclable, reusable or compostable by 2025. Our trajectory towards that target is very encouraging. I think we're currently seeing it around um, 90%. Similarly, we're also looking at ways that we can incorporate as much recycled material into our packaging. And this is kind of a holy grail of the circular economies. How can we take things that already exist and, and reuse them? So, you know, globally, we're sitting at it's close to 40% now in terms of the percentage of recycled material that we're using in our packaging. But of course, we want to do more. We want to increase that. And so we're always looking at ways that we can do that. So, there's a lot going on, uh, Jim, in the area of, of sustainability. I could probably sit here and talk with you for many hours about, about all the different things that we're doing. Are there any other things regionally that you're seeing good results from? What I probably would say is that there are a lot of other smaller initiatives and programs that we're driving as well that don't often kind of get the spotlight because they're arguably maybe a little bit less sexy uh, than some of the bigger things that we're, that we're doing by way of example, one of the things that we've very recently put in place in our Balclutha spray drying facility is that we, we've partnered with a local social enterprise in Balclutha, which takes all of our B2B packaging waste and recycles it. You know, the benefits there are, are multifold. Of course, it contributes to our overarching ambition to uh, ensure that 100% of our packaging is recyclable. We're also providing an incremental economic benefit to what is a relatively small town on, on the South Island of New Zealand by helping to power a social enterprise there that's employing a lot of people from underprivileged backgrounds. So you know, there's frequently a lot of things like that that are happening uh, 
in the background, Jim. Uh, we've also launched uh, some soft plastic recycling initiatives uh, across our Australia and New Zealand uh, offices. And one of the things that we encountered as we were rolling out this initiative, uh, Jim, relates to our current operating context, which is that um, when we start talking about office-based initiatives, it causes you to question now what constitutes an office. Because, of course, everybody's homes are now their offices. So, you know, in a pre-COVID world, we would have rolled out this kind of recycling initiative in our office environments, and that's where it would have stopped. But in a COVID world, uh, what we've elected to do now is empower our employees to extend these recycling initiatives into their own homes. So in the case of the soft plastics recycling, we've, we've literally purchased hundreds and hundreds of recycling bins and, and provided them to all of our employees so that they can take them home. And so we're extending that recycling initiative into people's homes, which, as I say, in many cases now are people's offices. So that's a, so an interesting uh, a byproduct of, of the way that we're operating as a, as a business now and acknowledging that um, there's a lot of crossover between, uh, you know, that, that, that work and personal life. With the Carry Care brand, how do you convey what you're doing to consumers and are they sort of aware of what you're doing and buying into what you're doing? You know, there will come a point in time very soon where we can formally apply for the carbon neutral certification. At that point in time, then it becomes a little bit more salient to consumers because we have a, a more tangible consumer-based proposition to, uh, to take to the market in terms of a product that is independently assessed, measured and certified as a carbon neutral product. And our research tells us, and anecdotally, of course, it's unsurprising, that increasingly consumers are actively seeking out products that are, frankly, kinder to the planet, that have a, a light touch on the environment. And increasingly, consumers are more inclined to want to move towards these kinds of brands. So this is something that's coming through uh, you know, very, very clearly to us. Uh, when we engage with consumers. And so what we will ultimately have with CarryCare is a choice for consumers that allows them to contribute to planetary health by buying a particular product in the supermarket. And we think that that's, uh, that's quite powerful. And how does this fit in with your global efforts? Jim, I think the main thing to acknowledge is that the journey that we're on with the CarryCare brand is very much aligned with our overarching ambition as, as Danone to be a, a zero net carbon company by 2050. So, you know, really at that point in time, uh, as a natural byproduct of that goal, all of our brands will be carbon neutral. So, you know, I'm very pleased that the CarryCare brand, which, you know, has very deep roots in New Zealand and is one of the leading brands in, in ANZ, has got a, a little bit of a head start on, on, on this carbon neutral journey. Uh, but ultimately, it, you know, it, it is connected in a very tangible way with that overarching Danone goal and, you know, sits alongside some of the existing products in our portfolio that have already achieved that carbon neutrality, as I said, Evian and Volvic and Horizon Organic in the US that similarly made the commitment as well. And now it's back to packaging and back to the UK. Butler's Farmhouse Cheeses has developed recyclable polyethylene packaging for its hard, soft and blue cheeses, making it the first cheesemaker in the UK to have a fully recyclable British cheese board. 
To tell us more about it is the company's owner, Matthew Hall. I wonder if you could just quickly run through what the issues have been with traditional cheese packaging in the past. If we look at the British cheese on the marketplace at the minute, there's probably just over 700, 750 different British cheeses that people are making. But if we look at the packaging types for those cheeses, then it's probably half a dozen different packaging formats that all of that goes into. And one of the key challenges for the industry has really been cheese is very much a living product. You're making it and then once you're packing it, it's still continuing to evolve, to mature, to give off different gases. Different gases are needed in different atmospheres to enable it to continue to mature. And so that combined with the fact that packaging hasn't really been on the radar for anyone, really, if we're totally honest, in FMCG 20 years ago, it was, it was much more around product. We've stuck as an industry with what we've known is tried and tested and, and works for our products to keep them in the best possible shape for the consumer. Because at the end of the day, we want people to be eating really great tasting products. As we've developed into hard, soft and blue cheeses, like say the to ensure the safety, the taste, the quality, the curb appeal, if you will, all of that has come into play. And we're now getting to a point where we need to look at that differently and less of the historic view of we're kind of starting to look at it with a new lens again. Why do you think that packaging recyclability is now so much on the radar? Is that consumer driven or regulation driven or how do you see that? It is definitely, definitely consumer driven. There's no shortage of news stories in terms of the excess packaging that's out there and how unfriendly plastic is, how hard it is to recycle the stuff that we see in our our oceans and, of course, all of the Blue Planet series. It's all helped to bring this onto the radar. That's getting the government behind it in terms of its plastic tax and the levies that come in in April 22. But I think more than that, in terms of why it's a hot topic now, that awareness is making us question, certainly, us as butlers, farmers, cheeses, what we can do to do a better job of it. We start in cheese with a very natural product. It starts as kind of one core ingredient of milk. So how can we keep that naturalness going all the way through the supply chain and go from having a farming industry, which is very natural, and keep the substrates that we send our product to to the consumer in that natural way? So that for me is what's making it the hot topic of today and how we can actually change that going forward. New packaging has to play a big part in that. How do we have a premium farmhouse natural product if it's in a plastic carrier. Yeah, and I think a lot of it as well, especially with some of the bigger companies, is when they're looking at reducing their carbon footprint and their overall targets of you know 2030 or 2040 or whenever it is, they have to do something in order to be able to meet those targets. So packaging is certainly something that ticks all the boxes in that respect as well, I guess. Absolutely. And I think you talk around those big, bold targets of 2030 or 2040 and for us, that's all great, but it's around what we can actually do and deliver today. This is a consumer need for right now. It's a planet need for right now, not for 10 years time to be in slightly less plastic and probably we're not even probably definitely as a as an industry, as brand owners, we've been guilty over the years of putting our packaging needs for telling stories above that of the packaging substrate that we've been going into because it's the right thing to have a label that works to be recycled with the product makes it very hard to tell those brand stories. But I think that just means that we have to innovate in different ways and tell a story in an online way or through digital means, as opposed to on, on the packaging. And it's the right thing for us to be doing.
Do you think that some packaging with respect to like the cheeses is a little bit behind other products because we've seen plastic straws being replaced by paper. We've seen paperboard drink cartons, a lot of different innovation happening. Do you think that cheese in some respects has been lagging behind a little bit? I think it, it comes back to that first point. Cheese packaging to be recyclable is really, really difficult. When we look at things like films, as a total packaging weight for the product, it's a very small percentage in terms of product to packaging ratio versus something like a, a milk bottle. You've got a, a lot heavier weight of packaging. We haven't arguably needed to do it as much as some of those other areas of the FMCG world, but more than that, it's, it's just the complications of trying to find a solution that isn't detrimental to the end product. And hard cheese matures differently to blue cheese. Blue cheese matures differently to soft cheese. On a hard cheese, we might be looking at something with 80 or 90 days shelf life as a packed product, during which time that cheese is continuing to evolve. It's continuing to give off different gases and to ensure that we're not driving food waste through a packaging solution that is environmentally friendly in the in the short term but actually in the long term you've got a solution which is driving food waste with consumers at home because you've got a 20-day shelf life instead of a an 80-day shelf life or or in a retailer's shelf so i think the different moving parts of the packaging the product and what the end user is looking for has made this to not be a simple task I think the waste streams for what we're using in cheese is also quite complicated in the sense of there's no cheese that has a card primary packaging format at the moment, whereas card has been a, a solution that's been recyclable for many, many years. So we looked maybe five or, or six years ago now at looking at, at card as a primary carrier for cheese, but the oils and the fats in the cheese mean that that's not a suitable carrier. So you do need some form of barrier to stop that. So that's where I think the time taken to get to a solution in cheese has been that much longer because the the more easier to recycle or more straightforward things like glass or can or card, which we've had infrastructures in, in local authorities for a long time, they aren't appropriate packaging carriers for cheese. And so as a company, how did you approach this and how long has the whole thing taken? As a company, we've been working on this for five years, probably now with some serious vigor, really, for the last two years. Our approach really from the get go was it was a board level decision that packaging was a number one challenge that we wanted to address as a business. We wanted to find a solution that was going to be right for our products and right for the consumer. We didn't want to get to a point in time where we had a packaging solution foisted on us for whatever reason. and that was detrimental to the quality of the cheese that we were making in the first place. So we wanted to, to take the time to find something that worked for the unique nature of our British farmhouse cheeses. So that was one way we went about it. We came up with a plan. Cheesemakers have been involved, our packaging people have been involved, our engineering and our operations teams have been involved. So it's been a business cross-functional mission for the last two years in order to find a solution that We've not compromised ourselves in any one of these areas to deliver something that is actually a winning solution for the customer. What was the solution that you finally came up with? Was that internal or did you have partners working with this with you? A bit of both, really. We've been working with a partner, I suppose you could say, Ian Schofield. So we've, em we've employed him for the last few years as part of our journey to really have the best minds working on this alongside our minds. So he's brought a a lot of technical expertise in pure play packaging and the substrates thereof. 
that we were lacking as a as a business. We kind of supercharged those with our technical knowledge in cheese, in engineering and in operations to kind of say, right, we've got these four centers of excellence now. How do we merge them all together to get a solution that works for everybody? That cross-functional work has really paid off. Once the packaging takes off, you mentioned it's difficult to get a message across on smaller labels and less packaging. Do you think that we're moving towards or should we be moving towards a system similar to the traffic light system we have in the UK for fats and sugars and salt, but for packaging as well so that you can see whether it's recyclable whether it has or how big the environmental footprint of the packaging is do you think that that's a necessary system for the future yeah absolutely i do i think we've got to see retailers taking a much greater responsibility for a category level and signposted in stores which elements of this category are doing the right thing for product and planet and which are the the areas that are maybe not ticking those boxes so that there is a there's a proper choice on shelf because it's very well and good saying on the back of pack it says this is a recyclable pack in the reality especially for the next year when people are looking to even quicker on their shopping missions uh, with everything going on in the world currently you're not going to be picking up a product and reading the back of pack and saying oh this one is recyclable oh this one isn't and it just isn't the the first thought process as a consumer, but we know from all the research touch points that say the number one things that's on consumers' minds at the moment is packaging and they want to do the right thing, but their expectation is that businesses help them to do the right thing. And I think that the only way that we can achieve that at, at scale is by the retailers using that point of shelf that they've got to tell that message and to create fixture blocking that says, this is recyclable, this is reusable. And we're, we're seeing it in the reusable space as they're starting to, I think it's Asda who've got the, the latest concept store opening for reuse at the minute. And that's really great. I think we, we need to start seeing the same kind of thing for packaging in the same way that we saw with polystyrene as pizza bases. When the retailers got together and said they don't want polystyrene on pizza bases anymore, the industry reacted and I can't remember the last time I bought a pizza with a polystyrene base but until we get to that point I think the the industry will will lag behind and consumers won't have that ability to make conscious choices because it will be too confusing at the point of fixture. What measures are you going to take as a company to get your message across to the consumer because it does seem like it's going to be quite difficult to do that? Yeah it's going to be an uphill struggle so talking to people like yourself hopefully spreads out the message a little bit wider that there is genuine solutions out there now for retailers who want to put together these ranges we're also taking over space to talk about this on pack so we're going to watermark all the packaging with recyclability messages so that you don't have to do the back of pack small print you can hopefully see it a little bit more overt and in your face that this is a, a recyclable packaging not necessarily the, the sexiest thing from a, a pack design and a brand point of view but I think it does start that journey of communicating what is one of the most important messages for consumers right now at the point of fixture with the tools that we've got available. And as far as the future goes, obviously you're doing a lot now, but is it something that you'll continue to tweak and to work on trying to make things even better? Absolutely. Innovation's in the heart of our DNA as a business. So 
right now, this is phase one for Butler's Farmhouse Cheeses. Phase two is already under trial in terms of moving completely away from plastics. And phase three is, is mapped out in terms of being into more natural substrates. We were talking about seaweed earlier today, those kind of natural materials that can be a true farm to fork solution for cheese. It would be lovely to see Blackstick's Blue in a seaweed that was flavoured to work right alongside that product. You mean to eat the packaging as well? Yeah, absolutely. Eat the packaging and the and the product all in one. Yeah, like I say, it's, it's exciting. This is very much the start of a journey. I think a very important one from an industry point of view as we move towards a different way of looking at packaging. And now it's a short trip across the Irish Sea to Dublin, where I suspect it's just as wet as it is here, for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. Hi, Jim. Um, The dairy markets this week can be categorised, I guess, as reasonably stable. The big, I guess, uh, pricing benchmark that's out, uh, well, yesterday was the uh, global dairy trade out of uh, New Zealand, which uh, saw prices there on the auction increase only very slightly at 0.4% um, on average across all products. Now, you know, it, it's a slight increase, but I guess it, the market took that as quite disappointing because the futures had certainly uh, expected the markets to, or that GDT auction to be higher. So overall, market a little bit disappointed with the numbers that were released I mean, if you look across the products, um, it was pretty stable on whole milk powder, which is the main um, product traded uh, through that platform, which was up 0.3%. Butter was quite strong, up 3.3%, um, but that's still trading. Uh, that was for um, uh, Oceania, or New Zealand uh, butter, which is still trading quite significant at a quite significant discount to Europe. Um, skim milk powder on the other hand was slightly lower on the GDT but that again is trading the sorry the opposite to butter that's actually trading at a, a reasonably strong premium to Europe um, in Europe in general I mean the markets have been quite stable um, but they're starting to turn a little bit negative uh, certainly today uh, in the futures markets we're starting to see skim milk powder and butter both move down a little bit partially taking that GDT is a little bit uh, less kind of bullish than expected. But also there was some very strong milk production numbers out of the US yesterday, um, where overall US milk was up 2.3% in September, which was way ahead of of expectations, where the market in general is probably expecting it up something like 1.5% to 1.75%. So strong milk coming out of the US. Uh, in Europe, we're still waiting on the official numbers for August. Um, so far, it looks like they've pulled back, so it'll be possibly be slightly negative uh, for the final numbers come out for August. But uh, it does feel like uh, and seem like with some of the weekly numbers that we can see that there's a decent rebound in September. Um, so overall, milk collection side of things looking okay. Um, obviously, with the lockdowns that are happening across Europe as well, more and more people are getting concerned on the demand side. And, you know, with extra milk and, and lower demand, that's what's um, at the moment um, driving prices a little, bit, a little bit lower. Thanks a lot, Charlie. We'll talk to you again next time. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. 
And that's it for Dairy Dialogue number 105. Number 106 is already shaping up with an interesting interview with Mitero about turning waste milk into t-shirts or packaging material. I'm doing two interviews on Friday for next week, but I don't want to say who they are, not because it's a huge secret, but because I don't want to tempt fate. Obviously, talking to me isn't the most important thing in the world for people, and they do get called into meetings at the last moment, or as people are working from home, all kinds of things can happen to throw off the schedule. And don't I know it. Yesterday I did three interviews, during which my phone rang, the postman knocked on the door, my son was singing Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie, sadly not in key, and one of the cats jumped on the keyboard and muted my microphone. Come to think of it, maybe he was doing a public service and trying to tell me something. So I'll sign off and hope you all have a great week, wherever in the world you're listening from, and please take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening.